0: I'm Daniel Cullen, Senior Fellow for Constitutional Studies at the Jack Miller Center for Teaching America's Founding Principles and History. Welcome to this podcast. Our guest is Wilfred McClay, the GT and Libby Blankenship Chair in the History of Liberty at the University of Oklahoma, and a renowned scholar of American intellectual history. He's here to discuss his new book, Land of Hope, an invitation to the great American story just released by Encounter Books. Bill McClay, welcome. I'm delighted to be here, Dan. Bill, let me uh, ambush you with an historical observation of my own to start out. 25 years ago, in the preface to your book, The Masterless, you wrote the following. Let me emphasize at the outset that I have by no means pretended or intended to trace the development of American society, economy, politics, or culture in the past 150 years. Whatever other follies may have informed the composition of this book, that was not one of them. Well, 25 years later, (laughs) Land of Hope traces that very development... (laughs) It can't be that you're older, but no wiser, Bill.
1: So why this book? Why did you take up this task now? Well, I felt it was needed. There's a couple elements in the answer to that question. One is that I I wrote, um, oh gosh, when was it? Around 2000, 2001, I wrote a little book, Student's Guide to U.S. History. And it's actually done really well for them. Uh, And... For a while, it seemed as if hardly a week or two went by that I didn't get an email from someone who said, "Hey, I like your book, and this and that about it." But you know, uh, you don't ever recommend a textbook. And could you recommend a textbook? And and I said, and I wrote them back to say um, thank you very much. You know, the reason I didn't include a textbook is I didn't think there was one I could recommend. So, you know, at a certain point, I began to get tired of always the same runaround and excuse. So that I began to think, you know, maybe I should tra- take a whack at this. And one of the reasons I never did or for so long didn't is that um, I knew enough, both from my own experience with them and um, and friends experiences that the textbook, the major textbook publishers would never let me do anything like what I wanted to do. Um, so, uh, and it would end up being processed meat yeah. <laughs> in the same way that all those textbooks are, and and mostly written with a view towards pleasing textbook committees and uh, and and stakeholder groups and others that are involved in the political process of um, deciding about textbook adoption. And I just, I didn't want to do that. So, so I started getting uh, inquiries from people, you know, Hey, we need somebody to write a textbook, you know, an American history. And that's, I would say always the same thing. I agree. Good idea. I hope you find someone. And, and that wore a little thin after a while. And then um, I got the proverbial offer I couldn't refuse from um, Roger Kimball publisher of Encounter Books who called me up on a Sunday afternoon at my moment of my most vulnerable, you know, I'd, 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 I'd um, taken my crab shell off for the weekend. So I was all soft and pliable. And, <laughs> he, and he kind of hit me with the idea, you, you really need to do this. The country needs it. It was a very stirring appeal and uh, it won me over. So well, we're all we're all pleased that you you responded to the to the call or
0: or were pressed into service. But let me ask you about about the the challenge of of writing the book. Once you decided to do it, you you write yeah. in your epilogue to Land of Hope that the American story should not be lost in a blizzard of details or a hailstorm of rebukes. The hailstorm of rebukes calls to mind Howard Zinn's influential history, which your book, uh, I think aims to displace. And I want to hear about that, but, but the problem of the blizzard of, of details, that's, that's a real challenge. Can you say a little bit about how you overcame that? Would you describe your book as, as political history uh, a history for citizens, which might yes. not be quite the the same thing. You make a forthright declaration at the beginning of the book that that this is intended for for citizens. You you make no yes. no bones about that.
1: Yeah, and I do see political history as the backbone or the skeleton of the book. Because um, I and again, I think it's a sine qua non. You you can't go further unless you have that in place. Um, you know, a skeleton is not the whole body, but you're not going to do very well having a bunch of organs floating around without a skeleton to, to give structure. So, um, yeah, I, I, um, I do take uh, that that view. The question of details is really an interesting one because it, it's, a, it's a most excruciating part of this. And uh, there's several things involved. One is that in, in, in much controverted subjects... You can't go into the detail that you would like to as a scholar about all the different competing points of view that exist. You have to, you, you, you have to take a stand because otherwise what you're presenting, it may be um, very self-exculpating in the sense that you've covered all the bases, but it won't be something anybody is going to want to read or gain anything from having read. So um, you have to throw things out. Um, and I compare it at one point in the book to, the, you know, you have to throw, <laughs> throw things out of the lifeboat, valued things, precious friends, you know, <laughs> you know, if you want to keep the lifeboat from sinking, if you want to keep it afloat. So this couldn't be an engaging or worthwhile uh, narrative, something someone would want to read if it didn't dispense with a lot of detail. So how to do that? How to keep a sense of the complexity of the story? Well keeping it moving, keeping it, keeping the reader's interest. Cause I am thinking of this book, uh, you know, and I don't want to, um, I don't want to leave anybody out, but uh, I, uh, fundamentally, I thought of this book, my ideal reader was, uh, would, would have been a very bright 17 year old, uh, probably a boy since boys are slower to mature than girls and less interested in history so had to be something that would appeal to him a bright you know he, admittedly a pretty smart 17 year old but someone who, who's either just taken or about to take the usap course in history and um is looking for something that will give them a sense of the whole range and sweep of American history and the biggest issues and the greatest themes as they develop over the course of the history. So that, 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 that was, uh, you know, sort of an ideal reader in a way that I held in my mind. And sometimes when things get very complicated, um, I would revise with that person in mind, uh, thinking what, what will fly with him? What will convey Something useful.
0: That's interesting. So. That that brings me to the to the style of the of the book. The subtitle, "An Invitation to the Great American Story," it's uh, it's artfully worded. I I think the emphasis on story. Mm-hmm. Its character characterization as a great story, and to me, most intriguingly, an invitation to it, to be, to be introduced to it, to take possession of it or to see or find oneself in it. One of the things that uh, struck me about the the book is you, you speak directly to the, to the reader Mm -hmm. in the second person. Early on, you ask that 17 year old who, who's facing the, the AP test (laughs) and you ask, consider the story of your own life. You didn't call yourself into existence out of the void. Yeah. That's, a, that's a sentence that that would grab even a 17-year-old by the lapels if, if teenagers still wear yes. lapels.
1: <laughs> well, and yeah, and and uh, um, might not be exactly welcome intelligence, you know, that, hey, you didn't, uh, in fact. Uh, um, although, of course, part of what being 17 involves is being all too aware of um, your dependency and wanting to mm-hmm. prove that you are, you are something more than the sum total of your dependencies. But um, yeah. And I go on to say, yeah, but you know, your parents didn't call themselves out of the void either. And neither did right. their parents. And that there's a, there's a a chain of being a long line of cultural transmission entailed here. And uh, um, that you're part of, uh, it's a whole different way to look at your, your existence in the world than to think of yourself as this kind of um this you know this distinct will embodied in a body that's placed here to do whatever the hell you want to do um and make yourself into whatever you want to make yourself into and you know that that that, that whole Part ha, the sort of half truth of the of, of a certain version of the American myth that that we can make ourselves whatever we want to be. Well, it it's it, it's partly true, but it's partly deeply false. And and so I wanted to capture that at the outset that we're I hate to use the word products of our history, but we are products in a way of 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 what came before us. But we're we the baton is passed to us in by time to make of those circumstances what we will. And that America is, uh, the reason I call it a land of hope is that uh, America is a place where more than any place else in human history, people have been able to transcend the conditions of their birth um, and think beyond them, to imagine other and greater things and and succeed in bringing them about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that there's always a sense that What is given to us initially, the conditions of our birth, you know, of our natality, are never the final story. Uh, There's always more to be said. And we're the ones, to some extent, thanks to being in a country where we enjoy a, a considerable degree of freedom, we can do the saying. We can we can have that. That doesn't mean we don't misuse freedom and all that sort of thing. And and um, the pursuit of happiness is not the, the achievement of happiness. All those disclaimers. But but um, to to hope is to believe that that something better is possible and uh, and is within the range of, of of achievement. And you you add in the
0: same passage. Uh, a a very forthright statement that the story we need is one that enables us to understand our nation and assume our duties as citizens. Yes,
1: yes, yes. Um, Well, and and that that the, the, uh, it's true that the freedoms we enjoy and uh, the standard of living we enjoy, all sorts of things we enjoy are not sort of the default nature of human existence on this planet and are not Going to be retained and built upon, or at least to, we're not going to be able to kind of persevere in them unless we know what we're doing. Unless we understand that freedom is not the natural condition of human beings. Freedom is, and freedom is something that is uh, always under siege, always eroding, always in danger of disappearing. And that, as Reagan said, we're one generation away from the loss of it. Very sobering thought. So, even though there are times when we feel particularly those of us who have raised children and sort of understand there's a kind of period of life that everyone has to go through for for finding your way. And it's true for countries too, that we, we do crazy things, stupid things, awful things, abominable things. And, um, but we keep going and, um, and eventually have the chance to, if not rectify them, at least get ourselves back on course. And uh, so, I think that's part of the tendency I have uh, for, for a way of looking at things.
0: That brings me brings me back to the point you made about the story being lost, not only in the blizzard of details, but in a hailstorm of rebukes. Your yeah. your history is in no way. Uh, a feel good whitewash no story uh, but you do make this point even in in the context of of explaining that indeed the colonial limitation of citizenship excluded women native americans african americans You're, you you emphasize and a lot of
1: white that males too, right? a lot of white males <laughs> has to
0: has to be kept in perspective You write, the tendency today is to magnify that exclusion at the cost of noticing the relative expansion of freedom in British North America. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you know, one of the things that's so frustrating about teaching American history, and I'm all for requiring courses in U.S. history and all that, but, but you know, the, the, the unfortunate thing is if, if, if young people and, and not so young people don't know anything about the rest of the world, then they have nothing to compare the American achievement to other than perfection. And compared to perfection, we'll always be miserably miserable losers. Um, we can't compete with perfection. Uh, I'm afraid a lot of times, especially younger people, and I don't want to pick on millennials who get in so much abuse, but, um, that's all the history they know. So they have a sense that, that the, the, the really dark side to American history, which is, is real and considerable. Um, is somehow an aberration in human history. The human history has been a sort of happy story of, um, I don't know, ab- Aboriginal peoples dwelling in peace and, and Europeans, um, uh, sort of doing things in a much more sophisticated way than the United States did. Certainly the, the conduct of the world wars are, are, are infinitely more sophisticated, but, uh, skipping the snark here, uh, there is, there is a, um, a tendency to, um, if you don't know, for example, if you don't know about Alexander Solzhenitsyn and his life and writings, you don't know about the Gulag archipelago, if you don't know about, you know, everybody sort of knows about Hitler as if, uh, that was the sort of other be all and end all There's perfection and then there's Hitler, <laughs> uh, and you're either like one or you're like the other, um, this is a very 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 impoverished range of historical reference and so it would be really nice if if young people knew more about the world beyond the united states but but they don't and so you you just have to do what you can but to get across the point that for example slavery is more the norm than the exception over the vast span of human history that the forms of domination that we re- we today regard as it, not just unacceptable, but uh, thoroughly illegitimate and even evil. Um, it, it's a real challenge for us to realize this has not been the case for most of human history and that we, as I say in the book, are on the other side of a great transformation in human moral sensibility that that was occurring during the time of the United States founding, into well into the 19th century, maybe even as occurring today um and uh that that you have to understand figures like Jefferson and Washington and others among the founders and framers who were nevertheless in, who were involved in the institution of slavery how, how they parsed that, how they reconciled that, and in fact, one of the things I show is how uneasy they were, how uneasy in a sense the Constitution itself is about the the uh the institution of slavery. It doesn't mention the word. Um, it mm-hmm. goes out of its way, I think, clearly not to mention the word. And we know um, from uh, some of some of the, with the records relating to the debates that 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 was deliberate. Um, uh, they didn't want to give any sanction uh, to the institution as such, to the idea that property in human flesh was um, was a fundamental constitutional principle. This is a much argued about point right now. I mean, Sean Willance has published a book that, uh, that that deals with this issue that I, that I think is uh, important, important reading. Um, uh, But, uh, uh, and, and there are others who, who take the view that that the constitution was a affirmatively pro-slavery document. I I pretty firmly uh, come down on the other side. Uh, I I think that's actually, on both historical grounds and let's say in a broad sense of the word patriotic grounds and that is to say things that conduce to good citizenship i think it's a destructive um, it's both false and, and you know, if it were true, one would have to admit that were true. But it's false, and and the, I, I think the entertaining of it to the degree we do is destructive, because it implies the Constitution not just was um, an incomplete document or a flawed document, but it really was what William Lloyd Garrison said it was—a a pact with evil. And uh, that the Constitution has been what's held us together—a uh, diverse nation, diverse ethnicities, diverse religions, all kinds of diversities. But but what our fundamental law is what has held us together and made us able to operate harmoniously and and prosperously as a, as a free nation. So. I, uh, you know, I I really wanted to come down pretty strongly. and No, that it was not founded on slavery. It was founded on other things, and in the fullness of time, the Constitution has come to embody those things. Right. There are several
0: points in the in the book where you you step away temporarily from the the narrative to make a larger point about the lessons of history or about historiography. And again, you, you address the reader directly in, in the discussion of, of slavery, you, you say this, that the price of abolition of slavery was dissolution of the union at the time of the constitution. Right. And you, and you then pose this question, would that have been worth, The price. And you say, this is a far different question for us to ask today than it was for them to answer um, in their time.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, look, I think one of the things that that formulation captures that I did want to get at in the book is, is what a different thing statesmanship is from um, merely espousing high and ideal principles that, that there is um, politicians, you know, we, we love to beat up on politicians in America and accuse them of being, talking out of both sides of their mouth and all of that. And, and, and look, there's some, there's reasons to be, to have a skeptical view of politicians, but you probably always should have a skeptical view of politicians. But, um, it's one thing to do that from the comfortable remove of, you know, a century or more. It's another thing to put yourself in the position of a Lincoln, um, who has to think about how to keep hold the union together when half of it wants to go flying off. And, um, and more going back to the Constitutional Convention, um, is is the principle of anti-slavery or abolition of slavery so compelling as of seventeen eighty-seven that um, it had to be addressed then, come what may, for the Constitutional Union. And I think that the prudential view was that uh, if 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 we failed at the Constitutional Convention to um, bring about a more durable national union, then the chances were very dim for the preservation of any kind of union and for the ability of the newly independent United States to remain independent. Um, I think often here of um, the example of Frederick Douglass, who's been much in the in the limelight lately, uh, David Blight has just published a very very impressive new biography of Frederick Douglass, who's um, you know d- had other biographies, and, including a, a short one by David Blight in the past, but very much deserving of it. And one of the things about Douglass, who was uh, for those of you who don't know, I mean a, a great African American abolitionist who had been born into slavery in Maryland and had um, through all kinds of uh, uh an interesting story about which he wrote his own narratives become a, a a an agitator for abolition a magnificent public speaker and a man who wrote with considerable power and grace so uh, really a most impressive individual and uh Douglas was had, had a very ambivalent view of Lincoln and it, when he Starts out in the anti-slavery movement. He's with more or less with the immediatists, the ones who like William Lloyd Garrison, who wanted immediate abolition, no ifs, ands, or buts. You know, this is a pure evil, um, nothing can stand, let, abolish slavery and let the heavens fall so far as the American Republic is concerned. But by the, but he, he moves away from that. And by the time... Uh, He's sort of observing Lincoln, finding his way through the war. He's he's uh, he ends up admiring him, and understanding that without the preservation of the Constitution, um, and thereby the preservation of the American political system, freedom or slavery wasn't going to make much difference. Uh, the, the 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 possibility of African Americans of the freedmen um, uh, coming out of the war effort to enter into American life would be much greater if the Constitution's integrity and power was pre- was preserved rather than being you know demolished.
0: Right? You you emphasize in the course of this discussion and other um, grueling moral moral dilemmas, Weber's to ethics, the Mm -hmm. contrast of the ethics of moral conviction and the ethic of responsibility. And that's another place, I think, where you're you're quite consciously trying to reach that 17-year-old reader who might be inclined to think this is simply a, a question of... Right or wrong? crystal clear moral, yeah, moral yeah. principle and nothing more to say. Yeah,
1: no, I, no, that's, that's right. And, and, and I, and I, but I also try to do it in a way that gives the sort of the profits of moral responsibility their due, you know, there's a greatness, there's a majesty about garrison that, um, uh, and, and, and a, and a kind of rootedness in in moral principle that is, is a, really a, an awesome thing to behold. Um, and it's hard to say, did, did, did he do more? <laughs> Some people argue he did more damage than he did good because he was so, uh, tra- challenging and annoying to so many people. But I tend to think that, uh, you know, we talk about the Overton window these days. I think he, he moved the, uh, the, 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 the center of discourse Uh, in ways that maybe created room for the more gradualist um, abolitionists to get a hearing Um, although in the end it's debatable you know how much influence they had Uh, that that's a whole other question and i don't really get into it in the book but um but still i think it's 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 very important to give the, both the, uh, the moral responsibility side and the, and the, the more gradualist Lincoln, you know, the, the responsibility for the consequences of your actions. You can't just say, let the heavens fall and, and say, I have no concern with all of the lives and, and property that's destroyed when the heavens do fall. Uh, and Lincoln had to think about that. He was always thinking about how to restore the union all along and and, uh, and so that when he had to really move to something more or less like total war with Grant and Sherman particularly um, this was this was very difficult because it, he knew that um, that kind of action would would have the effect of making the post-war reunion more difficult but Sherman was right um and Sherman being you know, maybe the first theoretician of total war, that the Southern willingness to resist, the Southern sense that the government their own government no longer would had their back, that that had that had to be a tactic employed in in order to to bring the war to a conclusion, but it raised the price and. uh, um, you emphasize the, the
0: incredible brutality yeah. of it in your, yeah. in your narrative. You, you, uh, speaking of, of the, the South, you make this interesting point about the, the challenge facing you as a, as a historian trying to, to see the South, see the South whole yeah. You, you describe a strikingly biracial society with stark differences of power and status, and yet also with an underlying commonality of, of culture. And you, you try to grapple with, with that, uh, that yeah. tension, um, how, how a civilized people could have embraced such a cruel system. Can you say a little bit more about just how you struggled to, to portray both those things, the, the, the brutality of the economic and social system as you, as you describe it. And at the same time to try to see the South whole, which included more
1: than that. Yeah. Um, it, it, well, I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm glad that I conveyed some of that to you. I, 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 you know, uh, that, that's one of the examples where I, I could have gone on for a lot longer and, and maybe made the case more effectively. But I'm not sure I, I do much more than point to the paradox and try to articulate the paradox, but I don't know that I can resolve it. It is a paradox. It is just as the, 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 you know, the, in, the inherence, the inhering uh, of evil Um, real evil in the minds and hearts and actions of individuals who are in other respects impressive morally impressive is is a bizarre thing it it happens to be a feature of human life that that we have this ability um to um uh for, for even very kind people to be extraordinarily cruel and cruel in a blind way. Um, George Santayana, who's one of my favorite philosophers, has a saying, a great sensibility be demands a great insensibility. <laughs> and I think what he means by that is that, among other things, that, that, um, you to, 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 to understand something in great, great depth and great, great sympathetic um, depth means shutting out a lot of other things, not noticing a lot of other things.
0: One of the one of the points you make at the beginning of the of chapter nine, the, the gathering storm before the Civil War you you offer another aside about the um the mistaken approach to the past that reads inevitability into the unfolding of of great events you're you're arguing for trying to see the past as its actors saw it and yeah. try to understand the depths of of their dilemma as a dilemma
1: yeah yeah and you know that that applies to a number of things. I mean, it, 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 I do. I do want, as I mentioned before, that for people to have a, more of a sense of how difficult it is to be um, able to engage in acts of statesmanship, of genuine statesmanship. It's very hard, and, and it's not something you can learn by studying books. Although you probably can learn a lot from studying individuals seeing what individual statesmen do. But there, there are no general principles of statesmanship. The other thing I was thinking of, and one it's related, is uh, I think in that chapter I deal with uh, the Compromise of 1850, um, which um, it, you basically traded the entry of California into the Union for a much more stiff and demanding fugitive slave law that would protect Um, the interests of the South, which were now and forevermore being going to be relegated to um, the status of minority. As John Shelton Reed said, the lower right, the the lower right corner, Mm. (laughs) or he used to write something called letter from the lower right. Uh, um, And, uh, uh, and I think, it's hard to read that to think, could anybody imagine this could succeed? How could anybody have thought that? But it's a measure of how um, limited the range of options were, maybe the, how limited the range of imagination was. But um, that uh, this was seen as an achievement. Um, this you know agreement which didn't last very long and was a um, you know sort of an unfortunate. Uh, last gasp to Henry Clay's uh, brilliant career. Um, But, uh, and, and I do mention something that often gets passed over in American history books is the Corwin amendment, which is, was passed. um, It never went to the States, but was, it would have been the 13th amendment instead of the amendment abolishing slavery Mm -hmm. was, it would have been an amendment um, preserving slavery in, in perpetuity in the constitution. Although, Even the Corwin Amendment language does not use the word slavery, (laughs) interestingly. But Lincoln supported this. Um, Oh, um, Seward supported it. It was uh, um, people who were deep, deep, bread-in-the-bone anti-slavery people supported it because um, they saw that as the only hope for the preservation of the Union, particularly after the election of 1860 when you have the first... Mm -hmm and really only completely sectional candidate in American history uh, win election. You know, Lincoln got not a single electoral vote from um, a non-Northern state. So, so I think that's part of what I was thinking of with those words. Is that, You know, we, we, we can't, um, part of understanding the past is to understand how it felt to be there as best we can. Um, and, uh, and, and it had that sense of contingency, a word that we historians overuse, but still I think it, it's, and, that they, it, it, and you know, you, you prepare people to be citizens is to prepare them to, for the fact there are no inevitabilities in political life. None.
0: At the end of the book, you, you make an interesting point about the difficulty of describing current history and yeah. and you say this part of the discipline of of thinking historically is developing the ability to be skeptical of what we think we see plainly before our eyes mm-hmm. often the grand passions of the moment prove to be of no enduring significance and you remind the the reader of the the epigraph to land of hope from dos passos and especially this this bracing, uh, phrase, the idiot delusion of the exceptional now. (laughs) That's right.
1: Uh, Yeah. That's grown on me. At first I thought it was (laughs) a little raspy. The idiot delusion, you know, come on, couldn't you tone it down a little bit? But yeah, it is, you know, we think, um, that we live in a time for which there are no useful precedents to be consulted, and and um, I see this especially with—I don't know how about you—I see it with my students all the time. There's this sort of assumption. Well, you know, um, it, it, given the technologies we have, given you know the medical uh, science that we have, medical facility we have, given all sorts of things you know, all bets are off, you know, that we're not really operating in, or even, even things like human frailty and human fallenness and, and uh, things that, um, that Madison and company um, took for granted as part of human nature and made, and helped to build their perceptions about a, a kind of conflictual constitutions full of countervailing forces, um, and ambition made to counter ambition and so on, uh, that it doesn't make a lot of sense to them. Um, be if, because they think they're living in an age of ultimate truths, um, and, and, uh, and that the little devices they carry around in their pockets, um, you know, sort of obviate all of history that there's, there's, uh, um, there's, there's this sort of amorphous, you know, uh, expanse called the past. And then there's now, uh, it, and that's that idiot delusion is that the, 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 um, um, that now is, uh, exceptional and, 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 and it, it, it transcends everything that's come before. And that's, You know, I also start off the book uh, with the phrase, history begins in the middle of things. And we are partly bound to our past, that past that we did not call into being. But there's also a part of us that's free, you know, Tocqueville. Uh, concludes democracy in america with this incredibly powerful image like him, going back to all my life where he says that around every man is traced a fatal circle and you know beyond that circle he, you know he he's the, he's a prisoner of circumstances but within the circle within the circle he's free and powerful and and what's true of individuals he goes on to say is true for nations um I think that's, that may not be a, a philosophically rigorous exposition of what free will yeah. is and how to reconcile free will to determinism, but it works for me. <laughs> uh, and I, it's, it's, it's one of the ways that I see you know, the, the knowledge of history. Is that in some ways, history, yes, we can rewrite the past, uh, and we do rewrite the past. Dos Passos says that. But there's also a way in which the past is part of the constrained upon us, that is you know part of our own fatal circle, uh, that we can't we can't just wholesale transcend, but we can it seems to me learn from it and benefit from it and even be nourished by it um, uh, and, and nourished in our the sense of it's hard to put a finger on it exactly, but it's a sense of connection to those who've come before. Uh, something else dos Passos mentions in that that epigraph quotation that that um, a sense of history, uh, a sense of connection to the past can help guide us through times of difficulty um, uh, and and when we have this sense of a lifeline to the past.
0: I think you make that point very powerfully in in your epilogue. It seemed to me that the leitmotif of of the book was. Robert Frost's line, "America can be hard to see." Yeah, it yeah. comes back uh, periodically, and and uh, with with a, a greater resonance each each time. I think, but at the at the end, you you write this apropos the, the question: Is America an idea? We we were discussing this at our seminar in, here in Philadelphia yesterday. What should we make of, of uh, America? Are Americans an idea or a people? And and you want to say both. And and but you emphasize this. You write the ballast of the American past is an essential part of American national identity. And it is something quite distinct from the idea of America. And Mm -hmm. you go on to conclude that all enduring civic affections must be built from the inside out. So yes, um, there is an idea of America that is is universal, universalizing Mm -hmm. and important, but there is also a particular people. And, and the two really shouldn't be, um, or one shouldn't emphasize one at the expense of, of the other. You, you say the vital tension in American identity is universality and particularity, but we, we err if we try to exclude one, uh, in order to emphasize the other.
1: I, yeah, you know, I, I don't know why I, in the end, didn't, use this phrase in the book but a phrase that I thought of using and I, I don't know why I didn't but is to say that America is an idea with a people but it's also a people with an idea that, that, that the two things are are uh, are inseparable and and but but further I I this idea began to this idea, this sort of way of phrasing it, it really kind of began for me when I read um, Walter Burns's book, uh, um, Making, "Making Patriots,", Patriots. And, and which is a, a wonderful book. And yet, I I felt it was in some way wrong, or something about it was wrong, and and it really relates to our mission at the Jack Miller Center too, because we we're not just about America's founding principles were also about America's history. And that's important because it, you know, one of the things I saw from Walter's book is that if you, if you concentrate too much on just simply teaching the principles of the Declaration of Independence, independently of the context in which those principles arose um, and are applied and have, are understood. I mean, they don't, you know, the, 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 uh, the principles of the Declaration of Independence don't legitimize um, the abolition of all authority. They, they don't, there's a, there's a distinct limit to, and also, although it's not a limit easily phrased in categorical or propositional terms, but it's, it's something that's, to, that, that's best, the limitations are best illustrated by consulting history. What we mean um, by uh, the kind of equality that, uh, the declaration sanctions and, uh, um, it, it, even something, even, even a general principle like, you know, universal human dignity. Well, that, 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 doesn't get you very far until you look at, at historical instances what, what does it mean to affirm dignity, um, in the face of, um, of the, the kinds of, uh, uh d- desperate and, despicable things that we humans do from time to time. Um, it, it, uh, how does this emerge and what do we, what can we learn from the way that it emerges?
0: Bill, let me, let me return one one more time to your, your first book. (laughs) from 25 years ago where you oh, you asked in in the <laughs> preface this does does the fading primacy of national identity in our time and its increasing replacement by more narrow and particularist forms of identification such as race gender ethnicity class represent an understandable reaction against the inadequacies of cultural consolidation or does it represent the conquest of the social and political world by the egoistic voice of the emotivist self? Ooh. It seems to me that yeah. that's where you, uh, yeah. that question comes up at the, at the end of land and land of hope and you yeah. resoundingly answer it there.
1: Maybe so, you know, and, and maybe the, the, you know, there are times when I wonder if uh, for all of us, uh, um, there aren't really just a few questions that we just, uh, worry to death for our entire careers, <laughs> but, uh, but events, you know, uh, I mean, e- events can, I mean, one of the things that I was struggling with at that time was whether, whether to take seriously the, um, uh, the notion that the nation state was in the process of being superseded, um, by either larger or lesser forms of organization and i think the 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 past 25 years have convinced me that we can't afford to let that happen that's another reason i wrote the book
0: well bill mcclay thank you for this conversation and even more for this magnificent book let's hope young Americans receive and accept the invitation to the great American story, their story. I'll
1: come, I'll come uh, on their doorstep and do a dance just to get them interested. (laughs) Thank you.